Good morning. Great to be with you again. Um, for 41 years, I did not have a pastor. I have one. I do not want him to leave for a long time. So this summer at uh, Elmer's Church, we're looking at transforming encounters, these stories of women and men who, in the ministry of Jesus and in the course of their life, intersected in such a way that things for them were never the same again. And we're doing that not only to be reminded of these stories, but to somehow come to believe that there may be a time and there may be a place when in the mind and heart of God, an intersection would take place in your experience that would forever change you in whatever way God wants at whatever time and whatever place God wants. Maybe a church service on a Sunday morning. Maybe a summer home at Sandy Pine. Maybe a motel room in San Diego. Who knows when, who knows where, who knows what, except that there may be in the mind of God a moment he has for you in your future, in his desire, that will forever change your life. And those moments come not only once, I think they come time and again in a variety of ways. And so we've tried to understand those things as the stories are told in the Bible and believe that in those stories there may also be room for people like us. Today we consider the story of a woman named uh, Mary M., Mary Magdalene, or Mary from Magdala, a little town about three miles north of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee. It's the only thing we know about her home. Nothing else is known. She's simply called Mary Magdalene to distinguish her from all the other Marys in the Bible. She is Mary M. How does she fit into the story? Well, let me tell you why her name occurs. Jesus once sat with his disciples on a mountainside, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a big crowd, and he's telling them things that they need to know about themselves and all of these people that they're looking at, and all these people who are listening to him, and all these people who are looking for some direction in their lives. He's telling them things like, you know, you'll be blessed if you're poor in spirit, and if you're mourn, and if you're meek, and all of those kinds of things. And then in the next chapter, chapter 6, he says, and I don't want you guys to worry. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or what you're going to wear. God's going to take care of those things. Look at the birds of the heavens. They don't work and they eat every day. Look at the flowers of the field. Even Solomon, with all his splendor, wasn't dressed like a simple flower. So don't worry about what you're eating, what you're drinking, what you're wearing. God will take care of those things. Now, if I were one of the disciples, I'd be sitting on the hillside looking at the flowers and watching the birds and listening to Jesus, thinking, yeah, that is, that's cool. I'm not going to worry about it. And then around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, my stomach would growl, and I'd think, well, what are we going to eat? And what's for breakfast tomorrow? And we haven't got any money. How are we going to replace the clothes when they wear out? I mean, it's one thing to say don't worry about it. It's another thing to understand how these things are going to be taken care of. So what did God have in mind when Jesus was speaking those words? I think he had in mind exactly this. Luke describes the scene in Luke chapter 8. After this, he says, 
Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, and also some women who have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. So Mary M. steps into the story as God's answer to the promise given to G by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Here's how I'm going to take care of it. Mary, help these men out. She is one of the women who had some kind of experience. We simply read it being seven demons cast from her that so changed her that she saw to it that she would join a group of others and become the support system for Jesus and his followers. And so these ladies traveled with them and out of the means that God had given them saw to it that all their needs were provided. Kind of neat the way she steps into the life of Jesus because Jesus had stepped into her life. So here's Mary. Part of a group that only Jesus could form, as different a group as this congregation is different in its membership. On the one hand, you have Mary from whom seven demons were cast out. Now, I've read a whole lot about that in this past week, and most of it, I think, is conjecture because all the Bible says is that the, she had seven demons cast from her. It doesn't say when, it doesn't say where, it doesn't describe the specific symptoms that she would have exhibited to let us know that she was demon-possessed. It doesn't talk about the change in behavior from before and after. It simply says, this is Mary. She used to have seven demons, doesn't have them anymore. So you have Mary on the one hand, and then you have Joanna on the other hand, who is the wife of Herod's household manager. Two women from entirely different, we can imagine, socioeconomic brackets, who would have nothing in common except their lives were transformed by Jesus. We don't know about Joanna's experience. We only know about Mary's. Seven demons cast from her. And so she, out of one transforming experience, decides that she is going to support this man and his ministry and give all she can to see to it that his work is further. So the story goes on. And Mary, Mary M, becomes prominent only at the end of Jesus' life and ministry. Her name isn't mentioned again until we come to the end of the Gospels where the story of the death, resurrection of Jesus is told. And then, no surprise, Mary is found again. She's mentioned first when Jesus is crucified. Three of the Gospels say that she was watching from a distance. John says that, Jesus, that she was near the cross when he was crucified. Now, it could be that she was at a distance and then drew near. Who knows how that happened? But it certainly seems to be in keeping with her character that this woman who gave what she had to support his ministry would not walk away from him when he was dying on a cross. The Gospels also tell us that after Jesus had died, the body was taken from the cross and he was laid in a tomb on a Friday evening. And we read that Mary was at the tomb. She knew where he was buried. She watched him die. She watched them lay him in the grave. 
And then comes the moment that we want to focus on this morning from John chapter 20, in which it is now Sunday morning, days after the death of Jesus. The Sabbath has passed, Sunday morning, and John in chapter 20 says, Mary came back to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus correctly for his burial because they didn't have time to do that on Friday afternoon. So she came back to anoint the body. It is Sunday morning. He says she came to the tomb. She saw that a rock had been rolled away, the rock that had sealed the grave of Jesus, right? It had rolled away, and she runs from the tomb back to the disciples saying, he's not there. They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. Peter and John run back to the grave. They find out it's just like they said, and they too went back home, and John says they did not yet understand that Jesus had been risen from the dead. Now we come to the point I want to focus on with you in Mary's story. John chapter 20 at verse 10. Then the disciples, we read, went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Really? You don't understand why I'm crying? She has come looking for the body of the Lord who they've taken away. It seems so clear why she's crying. I mean, things are going on. She doesn't understand. Her heart is broken because he died. She came to prepare the body. She can't find the body. She's upset. She's crying. There was more than Mary knew than that which occurred to her at that moment. At that moment, she saw an empty grave, didn't find the Savior, was upset, and only thought the body had been moved. But had she reflected for a moment, I mean, if it were like a Sunday morning like we have this morning, and she got to think about things rather than being caught up in the emotion of it, she might well have remembered some other things that Jesus would have said that could have explained in advance what it was she was experiencing. So the question, why are you crying, could be asked to sort of prod her toward a remembrance of some things Jesus said would happen. For example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, we read, Jesus began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, the disciples knew that. The intimate circle of Jesus' acquaintances knew that. I mean, he told them that. He didn't say it once. He said it twice. Later on, Mark chapter 9, verse 9, the mountain of transfiguration. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen. He didn't say they couldn't tell them that he would rise from the dead. He only said, don't tell them what they've seen, not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. After I've risen from the dead, you can tell them. And there's that phrase again. He's going to rise from the dead. Once more in Mark chapter 9, verse 31, he said to them, 
The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. It's the third time he told him in a short time span. And then again in, not in Mark chapter 10, we're going to Jerusalem. He says the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Why are you crying? He said he was going to rise again. Why don't you understand what's going on here? He said he would rise again. So I'm thinking, well, why didn't she get it? Hadn't she been listening? Wasn't she paying attention? Until I at least try to put myself in her sandals for a moment. Look, Mary knew that Jesus would be cursed and spit on and flogged and crucified. How could she not know he would be raised after three days? And I think the answer is probably simpler and closer to home than I originally would have thought. I imagine myself driving to Kalamazoo, Michigan, um, and driving to South Westage and pulling into Mount Everest Cemetery and going to the graves of my parents and my wife's parents and a sister. And coming to the graveside there and finding that the graves are freshly opened and the caskets that we saw lowered there, some of them 40 years ago, that, that the caskets are gone and there's nobody there. Now, what would I do? Well, I go to the cemetery office. I say, well, why did you move the bodies? What are you doing? Where, where are these people? The last thing I would have expected, even though I believe in the resurrection of the dead, the last thing I would have expected is that my dad or mom would walk up to me in the cemetery and say, well, who are you looking for? I mean, really, wouldn't you? How, how, who could conceive of such a thing? What in this world prepares us? for the idea that someone we lay to rest in the earth would come up from the earth to speak to us again three days later. How could you conceive of such a thing? It doesn't happen in this world, except it did happen in this world. It happened when Mary met Jesus again. Nothing in this world prepares us for that. And yet there are some things in this world that happened for which we can never be prepared. So the story goes on. Now Jesus is on the scene, and Mary is talking to the angels, and suddenly Jesus appears. So she says to the angels, John 20, verse 13, they have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Grief blinds us to a lot of things. Confusion blinds us to a lot of things. She didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Same question. Now a second question. Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll get him. Why are you crying and now who are you looking for? Well, Mary was looking for Jesus, right? 
Mary was looking for the, he delivered me from seven demons, Jesus. She was looking for the, he's the one I took care of, Jesus. When he was hungry, I saw to it there was food. When he needed a change of clothing, I saw to it there was a change of clothes. I was part of the group that took care of this man. He's the one I'm looking for. And he died, and I don't know where they put him, and I want to see him, and I want to take care of him, because I've been taking care of him all these years, and I still want to take care of him. Tell me where you put him. She didn't recognize him. She only knew Jesus on the basis of what he had done for her and what she had done for him. And now I think we come to the heart of why this is such an important message for people even months after Easter. The truth is that for some of us, Jesus has a limited impact or we have a limited understanding of who he is and what he's done. And I don't think I'm being unkind when I say that. I think I'm reflecting some of my own spiritual path and progress. The reality is that sometimes Jesus is for us a convenient answer to prayer. Like, I was really sick and I just cried out, oh, Jesus, please heal me. And he healed me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Or I was a single mom, and I didn't know how I was going to make it to the end of the week, and I didn't see any money coming in, and I had all kinds of bills due. And I just cried out, oh, Jesus, would you please help me? I need some help at this point. And something happened, and then there was some money, and I just said, oh, thank you, Jesus. It even gets to the point sometimes where we say, I was circling the parking lot and there wasn't an empty parking space. And finally I said, oh, Jesus, would you please open the parking space for me? And then there was a parking space. I pulled it and said, thank you, Jesus. I mean, he's been doing all these things for me. And I've been wanting to do some things for him too. And that's the Jesus I know. He is a friend to me. He is a provider for me. He is somebody who's always there for me. He's the one who's answered prayer for me. He's the one I could count on. He's the one who wouldn't ever fail me. And that's the Jesus Mary knew. But he is so much more. And if that's all he ever is... It is not enough. Who are you looking for? Who do you need? What do you want? Who are you looking for? Then comes the breakthrough. That transforming moment that eclipses demon possession and freedom. Jesus said to her, John 20, 16, Mary. I, w I wish I could have heard him say it. I, I wonder what it sounded like. I mean, Mary. <laughs> I don't think so. Mary? Probably not. I read it this way. Mary. That's all it took. Her name from his lips and her world changed. She got it. A bolt from the eternal blue changed her and she cried the language 
it's, 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 it's almost like a shriek. Rabboni, you know, you can see her mouth in a perfect O, her hands to her face and shrieking this name, and suddenly it's not any longer as quiet as a cemetery on a Sunday morning. There is a teacher. She cried because he said her name and she understood and she had a transforming encounter that made everything else second place. Suddenly the scene of the cross and the rock in front of the tomb and then the rock rolled away and the angels at the head and at the foot and all this sense of loss and all of that faded because there he was before her. She had known him as a great teacher. She had known him as a great provider. She had known him as a faithful friend. She had known him as the one who delivered her from her sins, from her evil possession. But now she knew him as one who went to a cross to pay for her sin and who stepped out of a grave alive for her eternity. Teacher! Wow. She was never the same. What burst into Mary's mind and heart at that moment was an understanding, a realization that changed everything. It did change everything. It even changed her position, status in, in the kingdom of God. The story goes on as John tells in John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, don't hold on to me. Apparently she just grabbed hold of him. She was not going to let him go. She had lost him once. I'm not going to let you go again. I see who you are. I see you are here. I see you are alive. Do not hold on to me, said Jesus. I haven't yet returned to my father. You go tell my bro- to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them what he had said, that he had said these things to her. She had a new purpose, a new understanding, a new life goal. She is, as Timothy Keller calls her, the first Christian, the first to experience the risen Lord, the first to see him raised from the dead, for her eternal life. And to her is given the honor of telling everybody else, including the 12 Jesus spent his ministry with, of telling them, I have seen the Lord. He is alive. And it changed everything for her, for them, and for us all. There was a time in the ministry of Jesus when the guys were talking like guys talk. And one of the things they were talking about is who's the best, who's the biggest, who's the toughest, who's the most, who's number one. And these guys were talking about who gets to be number one in the kingdom of God. And the fact is, they were talking about this as they were walking together, and Jesus was not with them. They came into a house. He came into the room. Mark describes that. I think it's in chapter 10. They came into the room. He said, so what, so what were you guys talking about? And suddenly there was a silence like there is in church on Sunday morning. Like, whoa. Uh, yeah, well, 
they were arguing about who is going to be great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, I'm going to be first. I'm going to be first. Well, I got a pretty shot at Who knows how that thing went? But you just, guys, you know what we're like when we get that way. Um, it's like, who's first, right? I'll tell you who's first. In every listing of post-resurrection appearances where Mary is present, she is consistently number one. The guys have nothing to say. Joanna doesn't have anything to say. It's always Mary. Her name is mentioned first. She is, as Keller says, the first Christian. I love the way Timothy Keller catches this moment. He says that means that Jesus Christ specifically chose a woman, not a man. Chose a reformed mental patient, not a pillar of the community. Chose one of the support team, not one of the leaders, to be the first Christian. That's the way God works in transforming encounters. Mary is changed simply by hearing her name, and it became clear what she needed, who he was, what he had done. Mary had come looking for Jesus, only to find that Jesus was looking for her. That, to me, is a message of grace that overwhelms me every time I think long and hard about it. In all my searching for him, he has come seeking me. So what are you looking for? What am I looking for? What are we looking for? Uh, a new experience, uh, another healing, an answer for prayer, a good friend, a constant companion, all of those things. Well, he is all that, but he is so much more. He is the answer to the sin that separates us eternally from God. It is his blood that paid the price that makes us right with the Father in heaven. It is receiving that truth, embracing it deeply, professing it publicly, and living it out that transforms our lives. And it all began when he simply said to her, Mary, what are you looking for? When you hear a voice tugging at your heart, when you're ready to move beyond the things he's done for you that have little to do with his payment for sin and his assurance of eternal life. Understand that while you are seeking him, he seeks you. And if he is whispering your name and waiting for you and wanting to hear the cry of your heart, I have seen the Lord then know that that encounter is God's provision for your eternal life. In the name of Jesus, God's Son, amen.
Lord Jesus Christ, we praise and thank you that you went to a cross because we are sinful people. There's no salvation apart from you. Thank you for the grace that lets us believe that you died in our place. Give us the grace to be able to rest in that work. And then with all our life and heart to respond in gratitude, in living for you. And I just pray that our hearts would be open to that encounter whenever and however it might come. And that we may be able to claim it as the moment when grace forever transformed us. Amen.